primary thing that we want to do is know God, right? We want to know him. And then we want to copy him. We want to be like him. So let's, let's look at this passage. We're in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to start with verse 1. Um, remember last week we looked at the stoning of Stephen, and who kind of led that mob? Somebody tell me. Who was leading the mob that killed Stephen? Saul, right? And so it said, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He would kidnap them, arrest them, and take them to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. And by the way, this, this fast that Paul participated in was, was really a, at a key moment, a key transition in his life. And if you look in the book of Acts, almost through every transition, major one, you're going to find fasting. And so, in a few weeks, we as a church are going to engage in a three-day fast. And we'll talk about that more later because of some transition that God's initiating. So anyways, and the Lord said, and now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. See what's going on here? God is telling Ananias, giving him this information he couldn't know naturally in a vision. And he's also giving Saul information about Ananias in a vision that he couldn't know naturally. He came in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So you notice Saul's calling is not just to be a witness. His calling is literally to suffer for the Lord. Isn't that amazing? So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized And taking food, he was strengthened. 
that was scales from his physical eyes. There was some kind of a healing that happened with the blindness that he got. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is, this, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. How many of you guys have read this story before? It's kind of a famous story. And just reading it again, what, what did you guys notice? What, what jumped out at you when we were reading this again? Anybody want to share? Yeah, for any. Notice that? The moment Jesus says he's one of yours, Ananias changes like that. Right? What else did you guys notice? What else did you notice in that passage? Anything else? Yeah. He was proving that Jesus was the Christ, but he had completely changed his whole belief system, so he was able to, to go back and redo where he went wrong. He changed it completely. Yeah. I mean... He was going to arrest people that were preaching Jesus in Damascus. Now he becomes like one of the people that he was going to arrest. Notice that? Anything else jump out at you guys in this story that we're looking at? Notice that? Orchestrating everything. And remember in the last week we we it the last week's story finishes with stephen praying for a group including saul and said lord don't hold this sin against them remember we looked at that that this was probably an answer to stephen's prayer yeah dave yeah yeah from the inside out notice that now, this was a cent Saul's conversion is a central event. Everything changes, and, and this was mentioned. He was going, at the beginning of chapter 9, he's going to go arrest and kill Christians. At, later in chapter 9, he preaches Christ, and he becomes like one of the people he was planning on arresting. This was a dramatic turnaround. And this event, what happened to Saul becomes central to Saul. It becomes central to the book of Acts. And you'll notice that it's in detail, this story of Jesus appearing to Saul, in detail it's written three different times in the book of Acts. Nothing else is repeated like this. And in Acts chapter 9, 1 to 19, we're told about it in the third person. But then in Acts 22, 30 to 16, Paul describes the whole event in the first person. And then again in Acts 24, 4 to 18, Paul describes the whole event again in the first person. And every time he retells it, he gives you different details. So put all three together, it gives you this huge picture of what really happened. And, and notice this. In Acts 22, 14 to 15, and he, Ananias, said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, 
to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. And he says, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what? Of what he just saw and just heard. This event literally becomes Paul's message. In Acts 26, when Jesus is speaking to Paul, he says, now get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what? Of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. This event becomes the thing that Paul repeats over and over again the rest of his life. So what happened? What happened on that road? You know, we really find out what happened when Paul writes about it 20 years later. He's writing a letter to the church in the city of Corinth, and he refers to this event. And in, when he refers to it, it tells us what really is going on. Let's read that. It says, Paul, writing the letter to the church of Corinth, and it's about 20 plus years later. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now notice what he starts to do. He's giving, what's the historical proof for Jesus' resurrection? He says the empty tomb is one piece of evidence, but now he's going to give you the other piece of evidence. That he appeared to Cephas or Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, who was Jesus' brother. Then to all the apostles, a mass appearing at the end. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he what? What does it say there? He appeared to me, what? Also. So Paul is putting this appearance in what category? These post-resurrection physical meetings. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul classifies this as a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Just like when Jesus showed up, to Peter or to the other apostles or to others. And what did he do when he, he ate with them and talked with them? Physically, right? In time, at a place. They touched him. But here's what happens. A lot, when you look at commentaries, you look at different books from written by guys that go to seminary and scholars... They are claimed that what Paul experienced in Acts chapter 9 was a spiritual vision, was this mental vision, and not a physical appearance. Let me give you one example. There's a, a professor, he's at the university, I can't pronounce German, whatever that university is in Germany, Gerd Ludemann, and he writes this about Paul. Paul claims in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11 that Christ appeared last of all to him. And he is using the same verb, Greek verb, opthe, which was he was seen by all these different people. 
by me, and he used that the same one he uses for the other apostles. In other words, he claims to have experienced the same appearance as the others had before. And isn't it reasonable to grant that Paul was right at this point? He had the same experience that others had. And to conclude from his statement that the others had visionary experiences too. Do you see what he's saying? Paul had a vision. Paul says, mine was just like theirs, therefore what? They all had visions. Subjective visions. Right? Why, what is he arguing? He is saying that Paul contradicts the gospel accounts. He is saying when Paul wrote the letter to Corinthians, he is saying the gospels were written decades later. Corinthians was written about 55 AD, and a lot of them put the gospels after 70 AD, much later in the first century. So he is saying that Paul's letter precedes the gospels. And he's saying that in the earliest account, Paul's letter, he doesn't teach a bodily resurrection. He describes a spiritual vision. And, what do, and what's his point? And you're going to find this on the internet with lots of people talking about the Bible and Christianity and Jesus. And you're going to find this, lots of books saying this. That the bodily resurrection of Jesus was a legend that came over time. Because over time, they believed that Jesus really existed, but he was just a good teacher, like a Jewish prophet, maybe even the Messiah, but that he wasn't God. And that it was decades later, it got embellished. And the church started teaching, oh, he wasn't just a Jewish prophet, he was God. And then they said, well, if he was God, he didn't just appear in visions like what happened with Jewish prophets. He rose from the dead bodily, out of the grave. And they say it was a legend that developed, a story that developed over time. Now, why are they saying that these resurrection appearances are spiritual visions and not physical meetings? Because they say that's exactly what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what they look at. We looked at this first. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul is considering his appearances the same as the other guys, right? And we read about it. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Well, they would say, that sounds a lot like the visions the Old Testament prophets had. And not these physical meetings. And then a few verses later in Acts 9, it says there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him, in a vision, Ananias. Well, he had just said to Saul, Saul. And they say, well, it says that Ananias' experience was called a vision, so Paul's, is implied, was a vision as well. And then it says if Paul lists his appearances along with the other appearances, then Paul is saying, well, those were all spiritual visions. And they say that's what Paul 
proves later in the chapter. And they start looking at the verses. 1 Corinthians 15.44, he's talking about the resurrection. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a what? Spiritual body. And they say, see how Paul classifies a resurrected body? He says it's not physical, but what? Spiritual. And they say that he says that it's disembodied, it's immaterial. And they say that's what lots of things were taught, lots of other teachings say that, including Jesus himself. Matthew twenty two thirty, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like what? Angels, where? In heaven. And they emphasize, these scholars, that angels are disembodied spirits. So will people be in the resurrection. How about this one? 1 Corinthians 15, 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And they say Paul is clearly denying a physical bodily resurrection. They claim that he's asserting that not flesh and blood, disembodied, no body, spiritual beings are the ones that are resurrected into the kingdom, not physical human beings. They write hundreds of pages like this. I own some of their books. And they blog and they post and lots of young people read it and post it on Facebook. If scholars like Ludemann are right and the earliest descriptions of the resurrection appearances found in Paul's epistles, if they're spiritual visions and not physical appearances, guess what? Christianity is no different than most of the other world religions. Do you realize that? Why? If Jesus just appears in a spiritual vision and not physical and not bodily after his death, well, Buddha had a ton of visions. And Buddhists afterwards had visions of Buddha. Mohammed, lots of visionary experiences that people had of him. If there was no bodily resurrection, a physical resurrection, Christianity is not really different than the other religions. Do you understand that? That's the point that these scholars are trying to argue. But here's the question. Is Paul really denying a bodily resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15? Is Paul interpreting what happened in Acts 9 as a mental or a spiritual experience and not a physical one? Here's what happens with sometimes when people are teaching the Bible. They show you one set of verses and they make all these points. Guess what they ignore? All the other verses. That's how you can deceive people. That's how you can twist doctrine. That's how you can change things. By teaching one set and ignoring the other set. Right? Did Paul teach a physical bodily resurrection? Everywhere. In fact... Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. 
In verse 3 to 5, Paul says Christ was what? Buried. What was buried? His body, not his mind. And it said he was buried and raised. And then Paul uses the metaphor of the seed four times. And he says, it is sown, it is raised. It is sown, it is raised. And he's talking about a physical body. In Philippians 3, 20 to 21, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly what? Body to be like his glorious what? Body. Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal what? Body. Through his spirit who dwells in you. Acts 13, which is a record of one of Paul's sermons. Verse 36, this is Paul talking. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not decay. What did not decay? His body. But if Paul clearly teaches a bodily resurrection of Jesus, what about these verses in 1 Corinthians 15? Right? What Paul is saying is, yes, I had a post-resurrection physical appearance of Jesus that came to me. Now, it wasn't exactly like the others. Because the others, did. what did Jesus do? He had meals with them, right? Remember that? Remember, they're like touching him and like, oh, that's a, you still have a wound there. Remember that? He walked with them. Remember on the road to Emmaus, he's literally walking with them for a while, talking with them. Now, that didn't happen with Paul. So Paul's, Paul knows it's not exactly the same. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that Jesus' appear, appearance to him it was a post-resurrection physical appearance. It was not a spiritual vision. In the same way that when he appeared to the others, it was physical, not spiritual. And then Paul says this, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. What, is, why, what does that mean, last of all? What does it mean, untimely born? This was the only post-resurrection appearance that came after the ascension. All of them, pre, you know, Jesus was here on earth, appearing to people physically, and then bodily ascends into heaven, waiting for his second coming, right? But Paul says, man, I was completely untimely. I got one after the ascension. And, and in that sense, the resurrection appearance is stopped, except in the case of Paul. What the church has now are visions, dreams, spiritual encounters. We are not going to see him physically until he comes back. In the way that, when I mean physically, I mean just like Dave right here, right? He's as physical as can be in front of me. Does that make sense? When Jesus appears in a vision, it's perceived internally in your mind. It doesn't mean it's not real. 
it means that it's happening in the, in the realm of your mind. It doesn't mean it's not real or in the realm of the spirit. It does, you know, does that make sense? Nobody else sees it. When Jesus, we looked at this last week, when he appeared to Stephen in a vision in Acts 9, it doesn't say anyone else saw that. Who saw Jesus? Stephen. The whole group there stoning him did not, believe me, if they would have seen Jesus, they probably would have dropped the stones. Do you hear what I'm saying? That was a vision. The Lord wasn't physically in front of Stephen like this. When Jesus appeared to Paul, it was not mental. It was extra mental. It was in the external world. It was not just perceived internally in Paul's mind. This is really important. You might say, I didn't know that it was that important. It is. There was a physical visible appearing of the Lord and this physical light. Paul and his companions saw this light with their physical eyes. Acts 9.3, suddenly a light from heaven. Now, the word in Hebrew and in Greek that it can mean sky or heaven, there's literally no way to know which it means except by context. Do you, know, you realize that? There is, we have two separate words in English. There are not two separate words in Greek. Suddenly a light, most likely from the sky, shone around him. Now that Greek verb, shone around, it, it, the word, it's a geographic word. It means to shine all around a geographic area. It's literally, often Greek words have prepositions and the verb and the preposition become one word. It means to shine all around. It was light on the physical land and the people. It wasn't a spiritual perception. Does that make sense? So Paul says later on in Acts 22.9, Now those who were with me saw the light. Notice that? In Acts 26.13, Paul says at noon... Paul makes a big deal. This happened at noon. The sun was already the highest in the sky. This light was bright. O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. You see that? Even though it was noon, this light was so bright that Paul's physical eyes were blinded for looking directly into it. Paul was not spiritually blinded. He wasn't metaphorically blinded. His physical eyes were blinded. Why? Because that light was so bright and he looked into it. And we'll see in a moment because Jesus was in the midst of it talking to him and he was seeing Jesus. His physical eyes got burned. His physical eyes got destroyed. Blinded. He even says that. And since I could not see why, because of the what? The brightness of that light. In India, there are Hindus that in their worship, they will gaze directly into the sun and they will blind themselves as part of their devotion to Krishna or Vishnu or whomever. 
and they're literally blind. I was led by hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So, Paul and his companions saw this light with their physical eyes. But more than that, Paul saw Jesus himself bodily in the midst of that light. Jesus physically appears to Paul in a geographic location. There are a ton of verses. Notice Acts 9.17 when Ananias who the Lord gives Ananias a vision of what happens to Saul. And Ananias is in a different location, has no natural knowledge of what happened. Does that make sense? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who what? Appeared to you on the road. Acts 9.27, So Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. Acts twenty two fourteen 14, and, and, and he said, this is Ananias, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to what? See the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. Acts 26, 16, Jesus says to him during, the, during what was happening, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, Am I not an apostle? Have I not what? Have I not what? Seen our Lord. There are, the word apostle, it actually has two different uses. We find even in the New Testament, there's those that function in the ministry of an apostle. They lay foundations where there were none. They planted churches where there were none. They preached Christ where he has never been preached. They're the, they're the ones at the front end, right? But sometimes the word apostle is used in that context, but sometimes it's used for that initial group of resurrection witnesses. And Paul, in that sense, Paul was the last of though, that sense apostle. Does that make sense? There was an audible, physical speaking of the Lord's voice as well. And Paul heard it and his companions heard it. That's not a vision. Acts 9, 4-7, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Then the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice. Who heard the voice? They did. But seeing no one. They, they, when that light hit, and we'll look in a moment, the whole group was thrown to the ground. Right? Acts 22, 7 and 9, Paul says, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So it's interesting. The whole group saw the light, but we find Paul only in that light is the one who saw Jesus. Saw and recognized Jesus. Right? The whole group heard the voice, but Paul was the only one that actually understood the words. But it was still, but the whole group is experiencing this. Does that make sense? The whole group fell down, not just Paul. Acts 26, 14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language. 
they all, all of them have a physical response to this physical appearing. Now, what about these other verses in 1 Corinthians 15? It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Paul is not saying that the resurrected person is this disembodied spirit being. That's not what he's saying. The word natural in the Greek means soulish. It, mean, it doesn't mean that the body is made out of soul. It doesn't mean that, right? It means that the current body is dominated by this human nature that has fallen because of sin. That's the way Paul uses the word natural. This word spiritual doesn't mean that the body is made out of spirit. Some kind of non physical essence that somehow there's a body and it's not corks, atoms, and molecules, right? That's not what it's saying. It means that the resurrected body is dominated by or oriented towards the spirit. This is how Paul uses the word natural and spiritual. Let me give you an example. In the same book, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 15, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. Well, natural person does not mean physical person in that context, right? It's a person that's oriented toward or dominated by their fallen human nature. Spiritual doesn't mean immaterial, invisible person. It means a person oriented toward or dominated by the Spirit. Does that make sense? So this verse is not saying that a resurrected body is a, not physical. Now, what about this one? So Paul's not contrasting a material body with an immaterial body. He's contrasting a natural body that is weak with its fleshly appetites and a resurrected body which will have spiritual appetites. It'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit. What about this verse? I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This, by saying flesh and blood do not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul is not saying there's no people with physical bodies in the resurrection. This phrase, flesh and blood, is used other places in the New Testament. This phrase, flesh and blood, is used in other places in Jewish religious literature. One of the books, have you ever heard of the Apocrypha? These Jewish religious books after the Old Testament, before the New Testament, Greek books. And a lot of times, we, we look at those books to see how words were used in that culture at that time. Well, Ecclesiasticus was one of those books. And it uses the word flesh and blood. Chapter 14, 18. As the green leaves on a thick tree, some fall and some grow, so is the generation of flesh and blood. One comes to an end and another is born. What's it saying? Mortality, right? People are going to die. 
Chapter 17, for all things cannot be in men because the Son of Man is not immortal. What is brighter than the sun, yet the light thereof fails, and flesh and blood will imagine evil. He's saying flesh and blood means mortal, perishable. It was a common Jewish expression. Flesh and blood wasn't referring to physical bodies. It was referring to our bodies in a current form that's mortal. It dies. It perishes. Paul is not contradicting Luke 24, 39. Jesus shows up and says, See, my hands and my feet, that is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Paul is saying when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, your current mortal bodies in their state are not going to have eternal life. You don't want that anyways, right? You need new bodies to live forever. You do not want to live forever in these things. That's what Paul is saying. You, needed a bo- you need a body to match the time frame, which is going to be forever. Why is this all important? You might say, Sam, why are you spending Sunday morning and drilling this into us? The entire Christian religion hinges on the reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection. Right? His physical resurrection, it confirms who he is in his incarnation, that he is God in the flesh. Paul says that. He is, in Romans 1, he is shown to be the Son of God by the resurrection. It is an outward event showing them. He had already told everybody I'm God. Every which way he could, he was telling people he was God. Right? He would say, I am. Well, all the Jews knew that God only said that about himself. He would say, I'm the Son of Man. Well, the Jews knew that the Son of Man in Daniel was actually God. This, right? He, Jesus, every way possible, was telling people he was God. But he's like, I'm going to show them the ultimate way. The, re- the bodily resurrection. It, it, the resurrection shows that what he accomplished in the crucifixion happened. What, somebody tell me, when Jesus died on the cross, what really happened? Lots of good people died on died as martyrs. Why was Jesus different? What happened on the cross? Somebody tell me. Well, an earthquake, but what happened? Why? What? How is his death different than the death of someone else? For our sins, the punishment of sin is death. Jesus said, "You are all going to be punished for your sin." I've never sinned. I'm going to go as a substitute in your place and die the penalty of death you deserve. But how do we know that that was effective? Everybody say the resurrection. Well, how does the resurrection prove that what Jesus did on the cross was effective? Well, think about it like this. If somebody breaks a law and they're given a sentence, let's say jail time for 10 years, what happens after they finish their sentence? They're free. They're not in jail, right? Well, what's the penalty for sin is death. And Jesus says, I've paid it in full. Death cannot keep holding Jesus. He paid the price in full. 
The resurrection is a necessary consequence if his death was atonement, dying for our sins. Do you understand that? And all these claims that Jesus made about himself, people are like, well, is that really true or not true? Jesus even told the Jews, I'm going to give you a sign, the sign of Jonah. Jonah was three days, three nights in the fish, and then he was out, right? Jesus was saying, I'm going to be three days, three nights in the grave, and then I'm coming out. The resurrection was the ultimate confirmation that what Jesus said about himself was true. Look at what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 4. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. What does vain mean? Somebody tell me. Forget it, it's pointless. And your faith is in vain. There is no Christianity without a bodily resurrection. But how do you know he rose from the dead? And I, we, I mentioned this at the beginning. There's historical evidence. It's not the only evidence. Right? When I cast out a demon in Jesus' name, when we see a miracle in Jesus' name, how come it happens in Jesus' name? The guy's still around. He's still alive, right? But the historical evidence is an empty tomb and post-resurrection appearances. The apostles' main goal in life was to tell everybody, we are eyewitnesses of what happened. Every sermon, they were like witnesses on a stand giving evidence for their claim. And, and what's, what do you look for in a trial? Eyewitness testimony, right? Peter said this, we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Paul says, Jesus said to Paul about this post-resurrection appearance, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what? What you have seen of me, he just, he's seen Jesus physically. And what I will show you. I remember when I was in Morocco. I took a team to Morocco uh, a couple years ago. And we did the whole country, me and this missions team. And I was in a taxi in a city called Tangiers. And the taxi driver, and I was doing this everywhere I went in Morocco, all the Muslims. What do you think about Jesus? And I, would have, I was just having conversations with them everywhere. Because Jesus is in the Quran. Now, not... <laughs> They say Jesus didn't die on the cross, didn't rise from the dead, Jesus wasn't God. Then, you know what I mean? And I said, what do you think of Jesus? Oh, Jesus, we love Jesus. Jesus is the best. He's just like all the prophets. Jesus just taught us to do so many good things. Jesus is great. And I said, just like all the prophets. Oh, yeah, yeah, just like all the prophets. The Quran says Jesus is one of the great prophets, just like Muhammad and, and Moses and all the prophets. 
And I said, but there's a difference. He goes, no, there's no difference. I said, no, there is. The taxi driver looks at, well, you know, in, in Middle East, they can do all kinds of things while they're driving, by the way. And they all have dents in their cars to prove that you cannot multitask even in the Middle East. And I said, Jesus rose from the dead. His body is not in the grave. And I said, he didn't appear just like an angel or in a vision. I'm telling him this. I said, he came back. They touched him. They ate with him. They talked with them. Muhammad never did that. None of the prophets in the Quran or the Jewish scriptures did that. And I said, in fact, no religious leader of any world religion has ever done that. And he doesn't respond to me. He doesn't look at me. And I, it was like this long pause. And he goes, Jesus is just like all the other prophets. <laughs> and he got in the last word. And then, <laughs> then he didn't want to talk anymore. Do you see how important this is? We're going to take communion in just a second, but any final thoughts about what we looked at? Dave. Uh, going back to the, that root of the Kassar, what, what, mm -hmm. what in the world would stop that man if he's a Christian to go into all this research to try to prove it doesn't to see what happens? There are a lot why? of professors. Why, why do they do that? Are they satanically inspired, do you think? Or? Well, I... I I think it's deception. I think that um, it's, it's a drive to want to prove that the scriptures are not accurate and historical. It's a drive to prove that Jesus was just a good man, not God. Um, at the end of the day, if, you, if all of this is true, what are you going to have to do? To who? Jesus. As the only Lord, only Savior. It takes your, it's going to require everything to surrender to him if this is true. So these guys spend a lot of time to prove that it's not true. Any other thoughts or questions before we take communion? Any other thoughts that just jump out at you? Anything else? What struck you in what we were looking at? Yeah, Jerry. There's a couple of words for vision, but they mean vision. It's, it's where it's, it doesn't mean it's not a real experience, but it's happening in your mind and not external. So a lot of you, people at church will say, I had a vision during worship. Well, everyone else around them didn't see it. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't mean it wasn't real. It doesn't mean that it wasn't actually God revealing himself, but it, was, it just wasn't a physical post-resurrection. Huh? What do you mean? The Lord has spoken audibly other times where everybody heard. Remember when the Father said, "This is, um, I will glorify your name and glorify it again, and a bunch of people, they thought it was thunder, but a bunch of people heard it. That The Lord's voice, the Ten Commandments was given audibly. I don't know if you guys know that. Not just written on some stone. So there are some audible voices. But... We're going to take communion, and what is, somebody tell me, what is communion? 
Somebody give me a two-sentence description of communion. What is it? Why do we take it? Remember, Remember what? Yeah. At Jesus, the, the Last Supper said, take this, remember. He, before he died, he said, remember that I'm going to shed my blood. Before he died, remember that my body's going to be broken. Remember my death. Remember it, right? And what he accomplished on the cross. And the implication is remembering the resurrection. But think about this. You can remember something, just write someone a note. How many of you remember stuff by writing on post-it notes? Right? This is not just a note, it's something you eat. It's something you take inside of you. You're not just remembering a fact, you're remembering it by saying, I'm actually, his death is for me. His life, his resurrected life is given to me. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is living in me if you have accepted him. And if you have it, I would recommend you do. Do you notice? It's, it's, it's more than just a mental remembering. It's a remembering that it's, when you eat something, it becomes a part of you. That food becomes assimilated in you, right? That's Jesus' life. That's why we do it with a meal and not just by writing it down somewhere. So Stephanie, why don't you come on up? What we're going to do is come on up and you can, these are actually more complicated than you think. <laughs> to take the bread, there's a little clear piece of plastic you pull off first. And you hold that. And then the larger piece you peel off. And what we're going to do together is you just, we're going to take the bread and remember his body that was broken. Drink the juice. Remember his blood that was shed, his death. But what I'd like you to do and this is where we've just become a family, is get into, when you, after you grab this, before we take it, get into just small little circles of three, four, or five around you. And after we take it, ask if there's anyone in your group that wants prayer, whether physical healing or you're just struggling, um, you need help, God to help you. This is where we pray for each other, right? And ask the living Lord to intervene in your life. So what I'd like you to do is go ahead and grab it and then when you go back to your seat, just get in a small group. And you don't have to know the people, it's okay. And if nobody wants prayer, that's okay too. But let's just take communion together.